you know, it's sort of the end and the birth all in one day. So it's 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 a lot of emotions. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Today is Friday, November 19th. That was the president of General Motors North America, Mark Royce, you heard at the top, talking about GM's initial public offering. Today on the podcast, another Planet Money deep read, but this one has a bit of a twist, Alex. You and I, well, especially me, admit to intellectual property theft. (laughs) We do indeed. (laughs) That's a conversation with Pietra Rivoli, who wrote the book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy. A book whose idea we stole and used as the inspiration for our own T-shirt project, where we're actually manufacturing a T-shirt to sell to our listeners and reporting on every step of the way from growing the cotton to cutting and sewing the fabric into shirts. And we have links to those stories that we've done so far on our blog, npr.org slash money. We are going to talk to Pietra the inspiration for this project, uh, in a minute. But first, the Planet Money Indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator is tens of billions. Ireland is likely to accept a bailout of, quote, tens of billions of euros. That's what the head of the country's central bank said this week. Uh, in dollars, by the way, that's um, that's also tens of billions. <laughs> that's like, now, did you do that in your head? <laughs> uh, I, I did. It's, I'm like a machine. Okay, so this bailout, it's, it's actually a big deal because Ireland has been fighting against getting a bailout. While the European Union and the International Monetary Fund, they've really been pushing for Ireland to accept a, a loan, a bailout. Ireland's been saying, look, we haven't enough money in the bank to last us well into next year. We have things under control. We're going to pass a new budget. And we don't want the kind of meddling and the strings that are usually attached to any sort of bailout. But clearly, the markets, the investors around the world are loudly proclaiming to Ireland, we don't believe you. We don't trust you. And Jacob, the the core problem here, right, is that the government of Ireland has poured so much money into bailing out its banks that bond investors, basically people who lend money to the government of Ireland all over the world are feeling really, really nervous. They're worried that Ireland is going to default on its payment, which is a big, dramatic move for a government to make. It is, although there is still this question when you frame it that way, you know, why does the EU care? Why doesn't the EU just let Ireland do what it's going to do? And and the key thing here from the EU's point of view is when bond investors get nervous about Ireland, they also get nervous about other EU countries. And we've really been seeing that quite dramatically recently with Portugal. And so, so what you see is Ireland's debt problems really quickly become broader EU debt problems. It's like this sort of domino effect. And the EU really wants to cut that off to prevent that. So if you don't want dominoes to fall, you just put tens of billions of dollars in front of the first domino, and then it won't tip over. That, that, that was the Greece theory, right? So it's like they put tens of billions in front of the Greece domino, and they're like, okay, we're just going to put tens of billions more in front of the Ireland domino. Right, but there's a Spain domino and a Portugal domino. Anyway. Yeah, the Spain domino is the big one, by the way. If the Spain domino falls, look out. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jacob. Thanks, guys. So five years ago, 2005, I was NPR's first international business and economics correspondent. I was new to the job and trying to get my head around how am I going to take this massive, complicated global economy and come up with some clear stories I can tell on the radio. Frankly, that's a challenge we still struggle with every day. And one of the first books I read was Pietro Rivoli's The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy, which came out in 2005. And... To this day, it is 
I think I can safely say the best single volume. Here's how the global economy works. Here's how it affects you. Here's how to think about free trade and China and capitalism and global trade and all of these issues. But it's also a great read. I mean, it is really just an entertaining book. It's got stories. It's got narrative. It's really it's it's sort of grippingly paced. It feels like you're reading this great narrative. Exactly. So back in 2005, I called Pietra up. We became friends and we ended up doing a bunch of stories together for NPR where we traveled the world and basically followed the narrative of her book. And so in the last year here on Planet Money, I had recommended to you and everyone else on the team, hey, you guys got to read this book, The Travels of a T-Shirt in the Global Economy. And we basically stole her premise, although in her book, she doesn't actually get a T-Shirt made. She she buys a T-Shirt. But we decided that is a great model for us to use to explain how the global economy works. Yeah. And as we've been rolling out these podcasts, we've been getting emails from listeners saying, hey, you guys, there's this book that you should read. And hey, there's this woman you should talk to, Pietro Beverly. And, and we have been talking to Pietro. We've We've all read or are reading her book, and we've actually consulted with her as, we, as we've done some of these podcasts. But we have never formally and publicly credited her with inspiring this project, which is a gross oversight that we are here to rectify today. And we should say we've always intended to have her on. But I do, I do genuinely – I mean, Pietro's a friend, and I do genuinely feel bad that we have gone this long without – letting our listeners know how formative her book was to us. And so we got her into a studio and talked to her. And we, and we started by asking her for her forgiveness for stealing her idea without giving her credit. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. Right. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, can we have your forgiveness? Uh, you can have my forgiveness. And your participation. And my participation. Okay. Absolutely. First off, let's just set out what the book is. So, so it starts in, I believe, Fort Lauderdale. Is that right? The, the story starts in Fort Lauderdale, where I actually bought the T-shirt. That's right. And, well, I started out by just looking at the tag in the back of the, um, in the, back of the, the shirt. In the U.S., anyway, you have to put certain information on the tags of clothing. And one of the things you have to put is, is where it's from. And I saw that it was from China, and I saw the company name. So I just uh, Googled the company name. It was Sherry Manufacturing. The company originally did manufacture some tourist-type uh, souvenirs, but now what they do is they import blank T-shirts from China, and they screen print them for various markets. Uh, you know, ultimately, I end up in a, a, a textile mill in China where they are spinning the yarn, and what became clear, not just for my little T-shirt, but for this industry more generally, is a lot of that cotton was actually from the U.S., our demand for cheap T-shirts is so big that uh, that translates into a ballooning demand for raw cotton in China that even China, the world's biggest uh, cotton producer, cannot meet. Uh, and so you have all this cotton being grown in the Deep South, in particular the region around around Lubbock, Texas. And Pietra, I... I... I know a bit of the Lubbock story because I went to Lubbock with you and yep. spent some time on, on some cotton farms with you. Um, that was five years ago. Hannah Jaffe-Walt, part of the Planet Money team, just went a few weeks ago. But the single most striking thing to me was when someone told us cotton should not be grown in Lubbock, Texas. It's not a particularly hospitable environment for cotton to be grown. There's lots of places in the world that where cotton makes a lot more sense to be grown. That would make me think cotton would definitely not be grown in, in Lubbock, Texas, but it is. So that, that, that to me was, was one of the first mysteries. 
And I do remember asking somebody on, on one of my first trips down there, you know, exactly that question. I remember a farmer just looking at me and, and saying, Honey, well, you know, God didn't actually mean for anything to grow around here. <laughs> That's the U.S. government's job. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and if you look at the, the landscape around Lubbock that is not cultivated, you know, that is not being farmed, it is quite clear that God didn't mean for anything to grow there because nothing is growing. Uh, I think that the dominance of this region in, in cotton, you know, was and is a, it's, it's a man-made and policy-made phenomenon. It's, uh, it's not a single policy. It's a web of policies that we have at the, at the federal level and at the local level that are designed to, to protect and support and encourage this industry. And, you know, it's not just uh, farmers growing cotton. Uh, this is an industry that kind of has tentacles out into the overall economy of this region. So, for example, you have um, oil, uh, food oil producers that use cottonseed. You have cotton brokers. You have cotton uh, ginners. Uh, you have all kinds of different industries that use the byproducts of the cotton. You have a very active um, university and research community that employs hundreds of people uh, who, who work on cotton. So, Right. You and I met that... Um this guy who was a cotton geneticist. Right, and right, he, right. And he told us that when he was in grad school, he was not particularly interested in cotton. There was some other, I forget what, but some other plant he really wanted to study. But there were so many grants available for cotton genetics research that it just absorbed lots and lots of people who otherwise would have no interest in studying cotton. And that's a perfect example, you know, of a supportive public policy. You know, there's no doubt that the protections and the infrastructure and so forth that are in place for American agriculture are exceptional. Can, can we walk through that? Like, So starting with the cotton, you sort of have two major buckets, two major types of government support. So you have government support of research, which improves our knowledge of cotton, and it's a more mixed story for you? Yeah, I think that's a lot more nuanced. I mean, government uh, historically has been uh, in charge of education, right? Uh, we do have a, a tradition for good reasons of public education and publicly funded research. So I think the the picture there is a little bit more nuanced, absolutely. You know, we now have a lot of arguments in favor of, you know, government research in, in, in clean technology, things like this. So um, I think it gets murkier. Yep. What, how, how do we think about the direct subsidies? Probably the direct cotton subsidies to the growers are the policies that have the, the least amount of support by, uh, by professional economists, by political scientists. And in other words, they tend to be the policies that uh, most observers judge as, as not being good for the, the world as a whole. I actually spent some time with you during, when the farm bill was was being voted oh, right. on, and right. I found that it is not possible to find an economist who does not actually work for one of the lobbyists for farmers who believes farm subsidies are a, are a good use of money. Oh, it's worse than that. I mean, you you actually I think would have a hard time finding an elected representative uh, who voted for the farm bill who would defend the farm bill on its merits. You know, instead. What they will say is, you know, well, you know, this was politically necessary for me to vote this way. So I think that the, most people would say that the Farm Bill is more a political necessity than it is sound policy. 
Uh, okay, so so all right, so we've got the cotton, and and then where does the journey take us? So we've got the cotton, and if we're talking about the cotton from West Texas, which tends to be a little shorter, a little scratchier, uh, therefore a little bit lower in price, you know, that's going to be targeted toward the uh, cheaper clothing, such as the T-shirt that I bought. And so a lot of that, uh, a lot of that cotton goes to China because that's where so much of that apparel is produced. So that's the step two. So you went to the you went to the factory in China where maybe not your T-shirt was made, but T-shirts like the one that you bought were made. Well, it's actually two. Uh, it, it can be two to three separate factories because there's actually three steps now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's yarn spinning. And then there's fabric knitting, and then there's um, constructing the apparel. So in my case, uh, that was two factories. The yarn and fabric were in one, and then the apparel was in a third. So the book opens with a pretty dramatic sort of moment of, of, of realization for you where you're, you're, you're sort of caught in uh, the 2000, it's the year is 2000, you're, t- you're caught in the anti-globalization protests and you hear a woman making a speech about, do you know where your t-shirt came from? And you say generally, like generally from economist perspective, international trade and increased globalization is only a good thing. There's no downside. And so you were sort of, by training a little bit, more likely to, to, to discount what this woman was saying, but you found, you know, but she was saying, do you know where your t-shirt comes from? Do you know that it was sewn you know, by a 12-year-old working in basically slave-like conditions, do you know that there's there's a dark story to, to your T-shirt? And, and you begin the book by saying, no, I didn't realize, so I wanted to find out. So in in China, this is where this question probably comes most to bear, right? What, what did you find? Was it whose version was correct? Well, whose version is correct? The labor conditions in Chinese factories uh, would be unacceptable, to U.S. workers. And in fact, they are unacceptable to U.S. workers. I mean, that's at least part of the reason that we don't have uh, certain kinds of factories anymore. So, um, you know, what's what would we find unacceptable? Well, I think it's partly uh, this is very, very uh, dreary, boring, repetitive work. I mean, you and I went to, to, to some Chinese T-shirt factories. Um, it was very frustrating we we did not feel that we were getting a full uh sense of their of their work life but we learned a couple things i mean one thing we learned is people are not crazy about their jobs i mean they, they this was not you know i feel like there there are two clichés people have about chinese factories one is it's just dreary 7-year-olds doing horrible work and that was not what we saw although of course we only got to go to factories that allowed foreign <laughs> journalists and professors to visit them. But what we saw was, you know, they were reasonably well lit. There, you know, it wasn't horrible Dickensian picture, although they were cold. We were there, I think, in February. It was chilly and they weren't heated. And a lot of the young, they were mostly young women in their early 20s working there. And they were pretty open about how they weren't crazy about the job. But they also all, the ones we talked to, I remember one one woman was just talking about how before she came to work in a factory in a city, she had never seen makeup, and it was so exciting to wear makeup, and and how wonderful that is, and that her parents back on the duck farm. Do you remember this girl? She kept saying absolutely how, how much she hates ducks and how awful, awful, awful ducks are, and how sad and dreary her parents' life was. And that was just this, for me. That was such a powerful tension: the tension between, you know, come on, just a lousy, dreary job right. on the one hand, and just you know. You can almost assume that her entire ancestry going back thousands of years have been doing 
even more drudgery work, even more, you know, barely subsistence agriculture. And she's got this little leg into the modern world. And she seemed to, on balance, really love it. Well, you know, I think anybody who wants to have, you know, a, a simple summary statement on uh, the 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 question of, of Chinese labor, you know, they're just kind of fooling themselves. It's a very complex issue. Not to mention there's over a billion laborers to, to yeah, deal with. Yeah, that's right. right. And so, so, you, you know, to it. try to put them into one category, it's, you know... It, um, but I think one of the things, you know, we do know is that, uh, and this is such interesting research coming out of psychology now, is that in economic circumstances, we all anchor is the word. And by anchor, uh, you know, what we mean is that we all judge our circumstances against some benchmark, you know. So maybe I say, you know, I'm doing pretty well because I'm doing better than my parents did. And, you know, if you and I walked into a uh, an apparel factory in China, you know, we we can't help but anchor on our own experience. And so that's what makes it look dreary and repetitive and so forth. But for this young woman that we talked to, Adam, you know, she's anchoring on life at the duck farm. And in particular, I remember looking at her feet and she had on these spike heels. And I remember thinking, how do you sit at a sewing machine all day with these sparkly boots on? But for her, you know, she was anchoring on the duck farm and she couldn't wear those boots you know, walking through, taking care of the, the and taking care of the ducks. So she's kind of anchoring on, on her past experience, and so you know the only way to so we're not going to be able to make an objective statement, right? Because we're all of us, you know, you, me, and and her that we're all anchoring. And then okay, so the T-shirt is made. You you watch it get made, and then and then what happens? I watch it get made, and then I watch it come back to the United States. Um, and you know that sounds like a kind of simple matter. The T-shirt gets on a boat and it comes back to the United States. Uh, but actually, in order for a T-shirt to get from China into the United States, it, it basically has to navigate a, a very complex. Uh, maze of trade policy. Because, you know, what industries will try to do if left to themselves is protect themselves from foreign competition, right? Um, And so if you, if I have a yarn factory and you allow me to, you know, slap on 50% tariffs and quantitative limits on goods from other countries, then I'm pretty happy because I get the U.S. market to myself. Um, So trade policy is essentially the result of a negotiation between those people who want to protect their industry from foreign competition. And on the other side of that negotiation are the people uh, who want access to cheaper foreign goods. So if I work for Walmart, I want no tariffs. I want no trade barriers. If I run the textile factory, then I want very high barriers. And so the trade policy that results is really a, a political negotiation between those different interests. So one of the things I found just so so interesting is, so, so you explained that from, from being a cotton seed in Texas to, to yarn spun either in China or North Carolina to, um, to you know, cloth made, uh, T-shirt sewn, T-shirt shipped, every step of the way, the U.S. or the Chinese or... Uh, the Honduran or whatever government is actively involved. But there is a moment where that T-shirt becomes a truly free market property. And and that is when you throw the shirt out. Right. You know, what happens 
to my t-shirt at the end of its life is it gets tossed into a, a charity bin, a Salvation Army bin, and then it enters a new global industry because uh, these clothes are, are sold by the pound generally by the, uh, by the charity. And right, only a tiny, tiny number of Salvation Army donations are actually sold in Salvation Army stores. Most of them are um, put in huge ba- bales, kind of like the cotton, yep. and 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 taken. And you and I went to this this awesome um, used T-shirt uh, business in in Brooklyn. Right, right, right. Now it's really interesting because you and I, uh, Adam, you know, we have enough old T-shirts, right? Uh, and so. If you look at the American situation as kind of a, an, an oversupply of old T-shirts, you know, we all have too many in our drawers. So in order for a big supply bubble like that to, um, to dissipate, those T-shirts have to find a home somewhere else. And so there's this very big but fragmented global industry, you know, that sorts and bales and exports this, this clothing. Right. And they, so they bail this stuff up. They ship it overseas where it's often... You know, those T-shirts will eventually be sold in, in some market in Tanzania or um, or Kazakhstan or wherever. And it might, you know, maybe for a, a, a penny a shirt or a few no, it, a shirt. No, it's more than that. I mean, a nice T-shirt that another – and what I mean by nice is, you know, no big stains or holes or, or anything. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll likely sell for um, – you know, for say seventy-five cents to a dollar. Although, if it's got a, a logo or a, uh, you know a hot brand name on it, it could it could sell for more. Uh, but yeah, it was interesting. There's a picture in my book of a used T-shirt market in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and you can actually see one of the T-shirts that's hanging in the market stall. It's for some kind of a community 5K run, and uh, I got an email maybe two or three years ago. Uh, from somebody who said, you know, I picked up your book and I flipped through it and I I saw my (laughs) T-shirt. Wow. That's so cool. It's so crazy that, you know, that a T-shirt starts out in some, I don't know, some American city or suburb, and then all of a sudden, through this crazy mechanism, it ends up in a market in Dar es Salaam. Yeah, Caitlin was just telling me she just got back from Haiti yesterday, and and she saw a guy wearing a T-shirt from her college, Emerson College, and her mind went to Pietro Rivoli's book. <laughs> right, exactly. How did it get there? So you can leave us questions or comments. Let us know what you think about this podcast. One great way is Facebook, facebook.com slash Money. Or, of course, you can visit our blog, npr.org slash money. When you go there, you'll find that we put up a poll asking you to help name a Bond girl for the financial world. That's based on this fantastic story that Robert Smith did this morning about the bankruptcy of MGM and what it means for the James Bond franchise. Some possible names for a financial world Bond villain, Jinx Arbitrage, Stocks Bondage, Fantoxta Assets. Uh, vote for your favorite at npr.org slash money. You can also, of course, go to our blog to find out about the music we use at the beginning and end of each podcast. Caitlin and Jess are amazing at choosing awesome music. If it was me, it would be a Bruce Springsteen song every single podcast. <laughs> Which is exactly why it's not you. Not that there's anything wrong with the boss. No, the boss is great. I'm Adam Davidson. I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening.